Well, happy Sunday morning again to everyone, and <clears throat> so we're going to be continuing in our study, and so we've been in a study that you can see uh, here by our title slide, a study in theology, you might call it, um, which can, can be just a general term for studying uh, the Bible. I mean, literally, the, the word means studying God, um, but it can be everything in God's word, so it can be real general. Um, we can use the word doctrine, just a word that means teaching, and so I've kind of broken it up uh, using that. We're in the doctrine of man, so when I go to my next uh, title slide, um, that's the unit we're in now. And so we're in, we've been several lessons in the doctrine of man. We're in lesson 10, part 3, meaning I just wasn't so quick about it that I got it done in one Sunday. And so, um, doctrine of man, uh, part 3. So we'll go ahead and go to our uh, next slide here and do a little review. Um, so I'll review parts of this, and then I knew where I was planning on starting today until I came in. I said, oh, that's where I left them. My notes from last week, I had made a mark where I left off. I left them here on the podium. So I come in this morning, get ready for Sunday school, and I'm like, ah, my memory was off. I didn't leave off there, I left off there, <clears throat> which means there was a couple topics I thought I did get to last week I didn't get to. Uh, so I'm going to go back and on the fly, get my brain in gear and cover those things uh, from back then. Uh, but anyways, in regards to um, thoughts on review, we've gone over a definition of sin. Um, I, again, I've held out this is, I just think, an easy way. I don't know. My mind works this way anyways. I don't know about your mind. Um, that it's an easy way to remember sin, that idea of missing the mark, that idea of an archery target. Um, God says, do this. Psh, hit that target. If you don't hit it, it's a sin. God says, don't do that. Again, the target. Don't do that. And you, if you do it, again, you didn't hit the target God asked you to do. And so... Um, it was worth uh, repeating um, because I think it's a good thing for us to remember. Uh, some sometimes think of sin as really bad things. Well, sin, you know, really bad things that you do is sin, but that's not uh, God's um, simple definition of sin. Um, another way to look at sin that I think can be good, um, and the scriptures hold this thought out. Oh, the scriptures hold out the thought that I just said because that's literally what the word means in uh, Greek or Hebrew, it mean, means missing the mark. And so it's the concept behind sin, but also the Bible teaches about lawlessness, uh, the basically breaking God's law. Of course, if you break God's law, you miss the mark. Uh, but for example, First um, John 3, 4, whosoever committeth sin, transgress, of course, the, you know, tra to transgress something means to break it or go against it. So, whosoever commits sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So, it's another way of defining sin, but um, the two go hand in hand. Missing the mark, breaking God's law. And so, um, that's how we began uh, this particular lesson, lesson 10 on uh, teachings regarding sin, which of course relate to our teachings about who we are as people. All right, um, we also had re, uh, went over uh, the concept of the doctrine of inherited sin, as Grudem likes to call it. Um, 
that the fact that we've inherited a sin nature from Adam. And so I'm not going to go back over that, um, but that uh, plays into, though, and, and, and um, does tie into things that we'll be talking about, because, of course, when we talk about sin, the fact is that we're all sinners and we've inherited that sin nature uh, from Adam. Okay, so um, another thought uh, that we had, um, we looked at, is that therefore all people are sinners before God. And of course, Romans 6.23 uh, tells us that, that all have sinned. All right, well now I get into the topic that I thought I had already uh, touched on last week. And so we'll, we'll go ahead and pick up here. That means, though, when I was thinking, I already covered that, and I couldn't find, I was looking around, I couldn't find my notes, I couldn't remember where I left them, I left them here. Um, then I took off the slides that went with this particular note. Um, so I don't have those in our presentation this morning, but that's okay. Um, we'll, uh, we'll be okay on this. All right, so uh, there's a couple points here that we'll cover without slides this morning. Okay, um, Does our ability limit our responsibility. Now, this was a page that had questions and things that were there. Does our ability limit our responsibility is the question. Okay, so now I'm going to read a quote from Grudem, and, and if anyone's not sure what I mean by that, um, I have a primary source that I'm using called Systematic Theology, and the author's name is Wayne Grudem. So if I refer to Grudem, I'm just quoting some things that are out of uh, the book uh, that I'm using as a primary source. All right, here's what he has to say. Pelagius, a popular Christian teacher active in Rome about A.D. 383 to 410, so about three, 400 years after the time of Christ, uh, and then later in Palestine taught that God holds man responsible only for those things that man is able to do. Since God warns us to do good, therefore, we must have the ability to do the good that God commands. The Pelagian position rejects the doctrine of inherited sin, or sometimes people like to call it original sin, and maintains that sin consists only in separate sinful acts. So that's one view that he's mentioning is out there. So in other words, if if God tells us to do something that's good, well, he wouldn't do that unless we had that perhaps already innate ability to do it. Well, <clears throat> as I understand from Scripture, there's you know the, the primary issue, uh, well, a couple of primary issues with that. One is that uh, the Bible teaches that in us dwells no good thing. Um, all our natural inclinations are against the Lord. Um, so the Bible, I think, pretty clearly does not hold to that position. Also, we learn from the scriptures, and let's start with one of the first good acts that would be the beginning of someone's spiritual life, that is, uh, approaching God and accepting his gift of salvation, You know, asking God to... Uh, to save one or to become born again or however terminology we might want to use. Um, but the book of John teaches us this. No man comes to the Father except the Father draw him. Uh, we're going to get into this more later with um, the thought of, it's another question that we'll look at, is, 
you know, is is there an idea in the Bible of an unpardonable sin? But so what we'll touch on at that time, circle back around to it, is the Holy Spirit. Can we do anything good apart from the grace of God? I like the word grace. Um, I imagine many, perhaps all of us, are familiar with the word grace in the Bible. Uh, but it's, it's God's enabling favor is one way to describe grace. It's God helping. It's, it's uh, Literally, it's getting something that you don't deserve, and we don't deserve God's help. We don't deserve his favor, and yet God can give us his help and give us his favor, even though it's undeservedly so. kind of pairs with the word mercy. Mercy is the idea of not getting what you deserve, like someone crying out for mercy. And I always think, I don't know why I do this. I don't know if anyone else does. I think of a sword fight, like old-fashioned, you know, French musketeer, you know, sword fight. And one guy, like, you know, there's, and he knocks the sword out of his hand and holds the sword at the guy's throat, and the guy can cry for mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Of course, you might think, what do you deserve? I don't know, in that situation, they know it's a fight to the death, so I guess I just lost the fight, I deserve to die. And uh, then person cries out for mercy, don't give me what I deserve, I deserve the penalty of the lost match. Um, grace can be the opposite of that, in a, in a sense, um, getting what you don't deserve. And so, um, the fact is the Bible, we're not going into great detail in this this morning, but the Bible has a lot to say about the grace of God being necessary uh, for us to do any spiritual good. Now, a couple verses that come uh, to mind. uh, One in uh, John chapter 15, uh, verse 5, I believe. Without me, Jesus says... Okay, good point. Okay, thank you, Mark, for sharing that with us. That, okay, that was a blessing to us all. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Your phone has a mind of its own. Maybe, do we need to lay hands on it and exercise a demon out of there? Or, or so, okay, I don't know. <laughs> Such is technology. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Did, did, I, did I voice activate it on that verse there? <laughs> yeah, John... Oh, was it Genesis? Oh, it misunderstood. Yeah, is it, was it doing a verse? I didn't even hear what it said. Yeah. Well, anyways, John fifteen five. Yeah. Jesus is the vine and branches passage. Without me, ye can do nothing. Um, so God says that we can't accomplish anything, you know, spiritually good without uh, the help of God. And we learn in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is the the primary person of the Trinity. Uh, where that's uh, happening. And so um, I think, you know, you're going to get in church history, um, various Bible teachers holding to various uh, positions, and this apparently is one of them. I don't know a lot about Pelagius and this position. Um, Grudem describes him as a popular Christian teacher, so, you know, we have those now. We have popular pastors, especially television pastors. And, Maybe have big churches, a lot of people like to listen uh, to them, and yet we know that that doesn't automatically mean that they are sound in their teaching and sound in their doctrine. Um, So, all right, um, so does our ability limit our responsibility? Well, we already looked prior to this, uh, the fact that, um, that we're held accountable for sin, and so we're all guilty before the Lord in that, and the book of Romans 
uh, especially chapters one through three, touches on that a lot. Um, but if God tells us to do good, does that then imply that naturally within us is the ability to do that? And if the ability is not there, then he would not hold us accountable for that. Well, that seems to separate, though, God himself from the picture, because when God tells us to do good, he's not expecting us to do that on our own. As we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, as we are guided by the Spirit of God, we can actually accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, only when we're grounded or rooted or, or uh, anchored in the vine uh, do we have that. So, um, Matt, I'll interrupt myself for a second. Did you catch that I said that the that I left my notes here and I didn't know this? Okay, good. So I'm just making sure you're not ex trying to figure out what slide we're on. I'm not on a slide right now at all. Okay, very good. All right. Okay, one of my goals is not to confuse the people at the multimedia table. Um, I don't always accomplish that, uh, but that's my goal. All right, uh, let's see here. Let me uh, see if I want to read this uh, quote or not. Yeah, let me read this. So this is Grudem's thought on that topic of ability uh, and whether that limits our responsibility. Uh, the true measure of our responsibility and guilt is not our own ability to obey God, but rather the absolute perfection of God's moral law and his own holiness, which is reflected in that law. And then he quotes a verse, uh, Matthew 5:48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, we touched on this uh, before, and um, probably not in depth, uh, but the Bible um, speaks of the law as educating us on what sin is. That we would not have known God's moral law except that, but then the Bible also says that it teaches us that we cannot achieve uh, salvation. We cannot be right with God because we can keep the law. Uh, the law teaches us that we cannot be without sin. We cannot meet God's perfection. So you, you see a number of spots in the scripture where we're told to be or do things that are pretty much impossible for us to do. Be perfect, just like God is. Be morally pure, just like he is. Be holy, like God is, because he's holy. Uh, thankfully, um, our end destiny is that we're that way. Um, sometimes it's referred to as progressive sanctification, that in our life we're progressively becoming more holy, at least that's what it should be if a Christian has healthy growth. But someday, the sin nature will be eradicated, will be completely without sin. And at that point, we're not going to be like God in every way. We never become God. Uh, but we can become without sin and therefore pure, therefore holy in the sight of God, not having all attributes of God or all of God's knowledge, but still pure in his sight. And that's the goal that we should be going for. Uh, Romans 8, verse 29, I believe it is, tells us that destiny be conformed to the image of his son. And so to the extent we're accomplishing that in our life right now, we're actually accomplishing what God wills for us. He'd like to see us progressively be conformed to the image of his son. And someday, eventually, when we're out of this body and uh, we have a new body and we don't have the old sin nature, we'll be that way more completely. Okay? Um, so therefore, 
Um, yeah, our own ability is not really what's going to get us there. We need the Lord's help in this. We need his grace in this. Okay, now that's all I'm going to do with that particular topic. Um, would anyone like to make a comment or ask a question related to that? Okay. Um, of course, you're always welcome to interrupt at any point. You have a comment or a question, and you don't have to wait for me to ask for that. But I just thought I'd double-check in case there was some little thought or question swimming around in your head that hadn't popped out yet. All right. Now, here's a, a next uh, comment. And I, again, this is one that I don't have slides for because I was thinking I had covered this. This is actually the point where I thought I left off and thought I had covered it. Uh, the problem I get is I'm trying to remember if I covered it. And it's like, oh, yeah, I think I did, but... I can confuse that with the fact that I thought about that a lot because I studied it. And so it's hard to remember. Like, I know I thought about that last week. Did I actually say that here or just in my own study? And I, uh, so it doesn't surprise me that much that I got confused. Yeah, well, we're both over 50. Our 50-year warranties run out on our memory. So you know how that is with warranties, right? It's, it's right after your warranty runs out that things start going bad. You know, it doesn't break down when you got the warranty. It breaks down right after it's over. So that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what, my, that's what my wife does. She's 27. Yes. <laughs> All right. This is a question that um, is hard to answer. Okay. This is a question that I don't think the Bible clearly answers, but there, there are some thoughts we could still have regarding it. <clears throat> All right, what's the question? Are infants guilty? Like, say, say an infant that dies, you know, two months old. Are they? Do they have a sin nature. Are they guilty before God? What? Then what happens if they die? What happens if they die in the womb? Of course, that's big issue this last week, Supreme Court ruling. Uh, a huge question behind that is, when is a human an actual human? I mean, that's the question that people don't agree on in society, and therefore they don't agree as to whether it's actually killing a human or not. Uh, well, we're not going to try to delve into uh, defining the answer to that question this morning, but, but anyways, uh, um, of course, Roe v. Wade uh, being Overturn in a sense and being sent back down to the courts, the or sent to the states to decide was a big thing this last week. Um, but um, if, as I think um, most conservative um, evangelical Christians believe is uh, the more biblical position, um, that that baby in the womb is an actual human baby, um, then I saw, by the way, I was just kind of looking around different articles. And I, this was one article out there. I don't, I don't really know who the person was. It was just an online article. I forget. I think it was in a newspaper or some news organization website. But apparently whoever it is would describe themselves as a Christian. Um, they talked that way. But I don't think so. Maybe not so much uh, real conservative in their theology. But they brought out um, a viewpoint that I'm like, huh? Okay. But here was their biblical theological position when God created Adam he took Adam and formed him out of the dust to the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life and Adam became a living soul I quoted almost almost 
a quote there of what Genesis says. So this person then said this, a person does not become a human until they take their first breath. Because that's the moment when God breathed into them the breath of life and they became a living soul. That's the moment when they got a soul. Prior to that, if you kill uh, um, a baby that has not taken its first breath yet, prior to that, it's like you know chopping down a tree or maybe shooting an animal. They don't have a soul yet. So that was the theological position one person took. So I, uh, that's a new one to me, but I do know that there's been a lot of debate in society as to when, when that becomes human. And... Uh, or in this case, when it actually gets a soul. Um, so, anyways, um, I'm not delving into all that uh, this morning. But let me get myself back on track, though, when we think about uh, babies, whether baby in a womb or a baby outside the womb. What about that baby? Is Are they guilty? Before they commit an actual sin is the way Grudem words it. So, you know, at some point, that baby's going to commit its first sin. How... I mean, if we, I, I don't have a way of answering this question. What's the very youngest that's possible? I don't know how to answer that one. I will say this, that on our oldest son, I don't remember having this direct thought about our other ones, but uh, I was pretty sure before six months he had committed his first sin. Because you, you, could, you could see it in his attitude. Like, he, he'd do things um, where he knew. We knew, I mean, he was disobeying. Um, and... <laughs> well, yeah, maybe they do. They do love to. That's the first word they often learn, right? No, or no, or maybe mama. Uh, one of those two words. Now I remember him coming over, crawling to something, uh, scooching or whatever he rolled, or I don't remember what he could do at that age. Whether he was only able to roll, scoot, or uh, I don't know if he could even crawl yet. But I remember. Um, uh, well, prior to that, he would lie to us. He would scream and yell and tell us that the earth was, you know, the world was ending. Like, I got a problem. Change my diaper. I'm hungry. No, I was just getting you over here, you know. I don't know if that qualifies as a sin or not, but it seemed like it was borderline anyways. But um, this one actually might have been even older in six months. The one example, now I'm thinking about it, because actually the one example I'm thinking of, he was standing. I don't know if he could talk yet, so I'm not sure if he could say the word no. Yeah. I just remember him standing. Of course, they got wobbly legs, so he's like on the couch, and and legs are wobbling. There was something he wasn't supposed to. It was like a no-no. He knew. Was, was that what it was? I couldn't remember. Okay, it was a remote control. Okay. Yeah, we'd we'd hook him to TV soon enough. So we were trying to hold him off on that at that point. Okay. Now here's what he did. He reached out his hand to it, stopped right above it, and looked. Like, kind of like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> well, I didn't do anything. Because he already knew. I mean, the fact that he stopped, he knew. I'm not supposed, that's a no. He looked. I'm just looking at him. I didn't have to say anything. I, you know, we're of a mind as parents that you don't need to repeat yourself ten times when a child disobeys you and say, I told you not to do that. I told you not to do that. Hey, if you do that one more time, I'm going to, you know, that wasn't our, what we were convinced was a great, you know, parenting style. No, if, if, the, if the child knows once and they disobey, I don't have to tell you two or three more times before I finally, like, that's it. You do it one more time, then I'm going to, you know. So he already knew. Because now, if he just reached out and grabbed it, I'd be wondering if he just forgot. But he, re- he reached towards it, stopped, and looked. 
<laughs> and then I didn't say anything. Then he grabbed. Well, then he got in trouble. <laughs> now, I remember there was something um, that was even prior to six months. I remember now. I can't remember that specific incident, but the same thing. So, yeah, babies can sin at a young age, but is, there's probably some age, you know, where they have their first sin, whatever that happens to be. Um, so, what about those babies? What happens to them? What happens to them if they die uh, before then? Um, so, Let's look at some verses um, that relate to this. Now, I'm looking here again because my notes are a little bit, I mean, they're a week old in my mind because I didn't have these particular ones go over at home. I'm seeing how I listed the verses. Okay, so here's the first one, Psalm 51, verse 5. Um, Behold, I was shaped or shapen in iniquity, and in sin... My mother conceived me. Okay, Psalm 51, 5. I was shaped, or the idea of the word shaped is the idea of being formed. Hey, well, let me read um, some thoughts uh, on this one. And this one here, I'm looking back, and this is not Grudem, but it's another uh, commentator whose name is Albert Barnes. Um, let me read uh, some of his thoughts on the idea, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. So the object of this important verse is to express the deep sense which David had of his depravity, of his own sinfulness. That sense was derived from the fact that this was not a sudden thought or a mere outward act or an offense committed under the influence of strong temptation, but that it was the result of an entire corruption of his nature of a deep depravity of heart running back to the very commencement of his being, the, the idea is that he could not have committed this offense unless he had been thoroughly corrupt and always corrupt. This sin was as heinous and aggravated as if in his very conception and birth there had been nothing but depravity. He looked at his sin and he looked back to his own origin and he inferred that the one demonstrated that in the other there was no good thing, no tendency to goodness, uh, no germ, like you know, germinating or, or like like germ. I know germ can mean you know yucky things that get you sick, but more like germination or there's a germ related to plant seeds. Um, that and now I lost my spot here. That no no germ of goodness but that there was evil and only evil as when one looks at a tree um, and sees that it bears sour or poisonous fruit, he infers that it is in the very nature of the tree and that there is nothing else in the tree from its origin but a tendency to produce just such fruit. Well, like you wouldn't expect, I mean, he uses fruit. I can't think of immediately of a tree that produces that kind of fruit, but we know that there's some plants that are poisonous to eat. So again, just say, well, if this plant produces poisonous fruit, it's probably that's, I'm not going to eat more, I'm not going to eat any fruit from it, hoping that the next fruit is different than the other, because it just comes from the nature of the plant. So Barnes goes on to continue, of course, the idea here is not to cast reflections on the character of his mother, or to refer to her uh, feelings in regards to his conception and birth, but the design, or meaning design or purpose of this passage, is to express his deep sense of his own depravity 
of depravity so deep as to demonstrate that it must have had its origin in the very beginning of his existence. The word rendered, I was shapen, is from a Hebrew word which means properly to turn around, to twist, to whirl. And then it comes to mean to twist oneself with pain or to writhe. And then it is used especially with reference to the pains of childbirth. Now, anyone that's been pregnant, and those of us that have never been pregnant, but been around pregnant women, I've been around at least uh, one woman three times when she was pregnant. And yeah, the kids tend to writhe and wiggle, and, and then all kinds of things are going on there. And my wife was sometimes writhing in, in pain and, and stuff. And so um, it is especially used with reference to the pains of childbirth, that is that word, it's shapen. Um, that is the meaning here. The idea is simply that he was born in iniquity or that he was a sinner when he was born or that his sin could be traced back to his very birth. Okay. So now most would probably not think at that point that he had yet committed a sin. I don't know if there were some evil acts he was doing inside the womb or that he came you know, flying out of the womb you know, with curses and, you know, and so forth. Um, but it, it goes back to what we've already talked about before, the doctrine of inherited uh, sin, that there's an inherited sin nature within us. Um, now, we've also mentioned this when we talk about whether someone's good or not, like they're a good person. You know, we look at babies, they're, they're so young and innocent. It depends on how we're using that word. I would generally describe babies as young and innocent, that would, but not in the sense of innocent before God having no sin nature, but more like you look at them and they haven't really committed a lot of sins in life and they don't seem particularly that wicked, at least relatively speaking, compared to what adults have had a chance to do. Um, so what then about an infant who dies uh, before they are old enough to perhaps understand the gospel message um, or believe in the gospel? And here's one of those um, areas where I'm not sure the the Bible clearly answers that question. I remember when my wife and I were young parents, um, I think we just had our oldest son, he's now 26, but I think when he was just a baby before we had our second son, who's about two and a half years behind him, uh, there was a special speaker. I remember being in a Sunday school class in the auditorium. I think we had a special speaker there. And I don't know if he said something that touched on the topic. So, But then I just asked the question because I always had a parent's heart of concern I have a child here who's too young to accept Christ as Savior, understand the gospel. Like, what happens if my son were to die? And he gave an answer that I think perhaps was maybe about as good as you can get it from the scripture because the fact is, the scripture doesn't really say exactly what that is. Now, Having said that, let me go over some uh, different thoughts. Let me um, read here, and I'm just trying to see. Okay, I was trying to see if this is Grudem here that I have quoted. Yeah, I believe this is from Grudem now. Uh, here we must say that if such infants are saved, it cannot be on their own merits or on the basis of their own righteousness or innocence but it must be entirely on the basis of Christ's redemptive work and regeneration by the work of the Holy Spirit within them. And then he quotes 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, if there, For there is one God and one mediator 
between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Well, Jesus words it a different way in another spot. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's, it was pretty exclusive. There's no pathway to God where our sin can, problem can be corrected, uh, where it can be taken care of, and our relationship to God restored such that we're adopted into the family of God. There's only one pathway God has prescribed, and that's through... Uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is what pays for sin. So that's one thing that he points out. He, he also quotes John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay. So then he goes on to say this, yet it certainly is possible for God to bring regeneration, that is new spiritual life, to an infant even before he or she is born. This was true of John the Baptist or the angel Gabriel. Before John was born, um, sorry, I, I think I said that with the wrong inflection. Let me back that sentence up. This was true of John the Baptist, um, who uh, before he was born, the angel Gabriel said, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb, Luke 1.15, Again, this is Grudem talking. I don't know if I'd quite word it this way, but he says, we might say that John the Baptist was born again before he was born. There is a similar example in Psalm 22.10. David says, and this is, um, well, actually, let me read it first. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. It is clear, therefore, that God is able to save infants in an unusual way apart from their hearing and understanding the gospel by bringing regeneration to them very early, sometimes even before birth. This regeneration is probably also followed at once by, um, by a dawning intuitive awareness of God and trust in him at an extremely early age. But this is something we simply cannot understand. Okay, so what he's saying there is, based upon that thought, now there's, there's two passages there. One's um, John the Baptist. Um, and so the angel Gabriel, again, says that he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Interesting. God of the Holy Ghost being in him, filled with the Holy Ghost before he's even born. Okay? And then the passage there um, from David um, Thou art my God from my mother's belly. So um, in a moment, I'll read some more from Grudem where kind of the thought is that there seems to be a little bit of an exception here. This is not the typical way that a person is saved. And so we'll hear some wording on that. But it seems like there's some unusual circumstances here where something like that happened. Now in a moment, I'm going to um, take these thoughts and tie them uh, a little bit to the whole Calvinism, Arminian debate if you happen to be familiar with those words. We'll get to that here in a moment. Okay. Well, let me continue reading. We must, however, affirm very clearly that this is not the usual way for God to save people. Salvation usually occurs when someone hears and understands the gospel and then places trust in Christ. Let me pause there. Now, Grudem's thought um, prior to this, he said, if that happens, then probably, now this is just speculation on part, he admits scripture doesn't, isn't really clear on this and we don't really understand this completely, but if it's true that like John the Baptist and David, there can be a, like a filling of the spirit at an early age, in the, even in the womb, 
that likely what we'll see is that child come to Christ with accepting the gospel at an early age, that they would, so, all right, let me uh, continue reading Grudem here. But in unusual cases like John the Baptist, God brought salvation before this understanding. Now, I'm not sh that's an interesting thought there, and I, I don't know if we can know from the scripture that that's, is that what happened? They, they, but maybe. Again, I don't think the scriptures are real clear. What did it mean when John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit? We know being filled with the Spirit, Spirit's usually something that's going to happen at the point of salvation. Or like even in the Old Testament, after, you know, the, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came and went from believers. At the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's indwelling was now a permanent thing. And of course, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple like a tent or dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So when it says John the Baptist would be filled from the Holy Spirit even before he was born, is, does that mean he was saved? Okay. Grudem's making the case in the scripture that that could be what that means. I think he, he admits in a number of spots it's not real clear and our understanding of this isn't uh, able to be super clear. But let me continue reading Grudem. And uh, let me back up one sentence. But in unusual cases like John the Baptist, God brought salvation before this understanding. And this leads us, before they had an understanding and accepting the, the gospel. And this leads us to conclude that it is certainly, that it certainly is possible that God would also do this when he knows the infant will die before hearing the gospel. Okay. How many infants does God save in this way? Scripture does not tell us, so we simply cannot know. Where scripture is silent, it is unwise for us to make definitive uh, pronouncements. Okay. And, all right, so now I'm going to add some thoughts to this. One I would say is this, we looked at this verse um, uh, previously, Ab Abraham said this, Shall not the judge of all earth do right? There will never be a point, so we can rest in this assurance, there will never be a point where God is unjust in any way. Now, that doesn't automatically bring peace of mind on the topic, because all of us would desire that every baby die, dying in infancy, or even before birth, would go to heaven. And my own view is I think that may be the case. But do we, does everyone, does, you know, this is human thinking, at least amongst Christians, does everyone deserve a right to be saved? you get back to the fact that the penalty of sin, both a first and a second death, a physical and then a spiritual death, is the just punishment of the sin. And God is not under any moral obligation to have, to have offered salvation to any of us in the first place. We don't deserve the offer of salvation. Uh, now, that's not a thought I think any of us as humans really relish in, like but, it, but it's the truth of it that we stand guilty before God, not after we reject his offer of salvation, but before we even know about his offer of salvation. We stand guilty because of our sin. But um, when I can't really answer this question completely, one thing my mind goes back to is this, that um, he's a good God. Okay. Now, there's a particular verse in the scripture, um, and I... I don't see it right here. Interesting. Um, well, I, can, I can't quote the verse or even come close to quoting it. I can paraphrase it for sure. 
and again in my notes right here yeah it's it's david's do you have that verse in front of you okay why don't you go ahead and read it well let me give a preface to it um so this is a a verse that relates to when david sinned with bathsheba and as a punishment for this sin uh, bathsheba of course got pregnant which is why they couldn't hide the sin because now there was no way of hiding this from bathsheba's husband uh, Ab, uh not absalom uh, her husband uriah um, uriah had not been around her because he was off at war he had not been around her he had not had physical relations with her anywhere near the time when this pregnancy could have happened so she could not have gotten pregnant by him he would have figured it out there was a sin that now could not be hidden and so then came the cover-up david arranges for uriah to be placed in a position in battle where he's going to be killed in fact he tells his military this kind of i think speaks to the the military morality of some of his officers place uriah in a part of the battle where the the fighting's intense and then like assign him up there and then withdraw from him and let him get killed by the enemy uh, it's amazing to me that any military officer with any kind of morality would even do that, which I, I don't think they would. Not, not everyone that was in Israel were regenerated believers that were moral. So his military officers did that. Uriah was killed, the baby's born, but God has confronted David with his sin, and part of the punishment is that baby's going to die. Okay, so now we have a verse here. What, what's the reference again? I'll, Okay. All right. So 2 Samuel 12, 22, and 23 for those online. If you're, I want to make sure you guys can hear the references there, but go ahead. Yeah, and it's that last phrase I will go to him but he will not return to me. Uh, I think it's one of the strongest passages in the Bible that um, seems like it would be very reasonable and likely to be understood that David would someday see him in heaven. He will go to him. He will see him again. Um, Now, some have um, thought it more to say, I will go to the grave. He will not return to me, but I will. I will go to him. I'll. I'll also eventually join him in the grave. But I don't think that seems to be likely the case. Now you can see in this again is there a definitive um, statement from the scripture that says for sure what's going to happen uh, to a child. But I think likely from that that the Lord does allow from that and the account of John the Baptist and then the statement by David uh, that infants can go to heaven. Um, now, the Arminian Calvinism thought um, under, and I don't want to go into great detail on this, so if you don't know um, what's meant by those statements, you won't learn that much today on it. I'm, I'm not going to take time to delve into that. But under uh, kind of a Calvinist position, especially a strong Calvinist position, where God elects those that are saved apart from anything that they do um, this would be again might even you know I'm going not to just kind of middle of the road Calvinism even to sometimes what's described as a hyper Calvinism um, that 
God then chooses certain babies to be saved, certain ones not. So some of them will go to heaven, some of them won't. Um, that would be kind of a Calvinist view on that. Now, in an Arminian view, which is non-Calvinism, um, sometimes what comes up in that view is something called an age of accountability. Um, again, though, the Bible's not clear on either one of these. Uh, so even though there's a thought of age of accountability on the part of many Christians, whether that's the case or not, the Bible doesn't say, what's an age of accountability? Well, uh, here's how Gruden described it. Some maintain that Scripture teaches an age of accountability before which young children are not held responsible um, for sin and are not counted guilty before God. So the thought is that God won't hold children accountable for their sin. It's not the denial that there's an inherited sin nature, but the idea that a child will not be held accountable for sin until they get old enough to understand sin, to be con committing sin willfully, um, or even possibly the ability to understand the gospel message. Um, and I'm sure that varies amongst Christians as to exactly what they think on that. Again, there's no passage of scripture, though, that clearly says that or clearly defines how it would work or who it would apply to. But on the Calvinist side, same thing. There's a passage of scripture that says exactly what God will do uh, regarding that. And so, unfortunately, in the end, then, um, we can't really say from scripture how that might work. Um, and all right so now i'm going to move along but i'll do that one of those pauses again does anyone have any questions or comments uh regarding that yeah yeah Actually, thanks for pointing that out. I didn't, I didn't um, remember and think about that particular one. But yeah, that one, I think, um, is a good point in strengthening the thought of what David was thinking about what... Yeah, yeah in fact, his, um, his friends there in the, in the palace commented on him, paraphrasing them. Basically, what is wrong with you, David? Because when your son Absalom died, you mourned, you wept over his death, your adult son Absalom. When this baby was alive, you mourned and wept. And, and when the baby died, then you got up, cleaned yourself up, and stopped weeping. And that's when he made that statement that I will, uh, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. So, yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Any other thoughts, questions there? Okay. Um, let me... Okay, so now our first... Uh, I did have this first slide here. I guess I, I forgot that I had a review slide here uh, on sin, but I already reviewed that. So let me go to the next slide after that. And... Okay, so this is, this is the, where I thought I was going to be starting today. Um, without remembering that I had more to do. Um, so, oops, let me get. Okay. Give me a second as I got last week's notes mixed with this. So this may take just a moment. This is called dead airspace when you're in radio business. 
Okay. Yeah, all right, I see. I just have it. Things are tabbed, bullet pointed the wrong way, which didn't allow me to find the first point here, but I finally found it. It's indented as if it's as if it's a point under the previous point, so I couldn't find this at all. All right, I found it now. Thank you for your patience on that. I hope that wasn't an uncomfortable silence for you. Are there degrees of sin? Like are some sins worse than others? That's basically the question. Perhaps. Actually, I should back that up. It depends on what you mean by the question. Um, it could be yes, if we're talking about some sins being worse than others in one sense, and in another sense, the answer is no. So basically, the quick answer on this one is, are there degrees of sin? Not if we're looking at legal guilt, the first point under this. All it takes is one sin to be legally found guilty of breaking God's law. Therefore, one sin compared to another doesn't really matter. As I kind of you know, joked with uh, before about Adam's sin, what was that sin that was so bad that caused Adam to be condemned to death, both spiritual and physical, and caused the whole human race to inherit that sin nature? What was that heinous, wicked sin? He ate a piece of fruit. <gasps> or we might even say that, might be tempted as humans say that about what it really was, disobeying God. He disobeyed God. Death penalty for that. But we tend, wouldn't tend to do that with our children. You disobeyed me. Off with your head. Death penalty. Okay. But it's, it's the idea that we have now have sin. We've broken God's law. And all it takes is one sin to be guilty of that. It only takes one sin to need a savior. Unfortunately, with many, they think, well, I, I don't really need to be saved because I'm basically a good person. The problem is that the, the Bible teaches clearly. And, and you've you got to stand before God the judge. And understand, he's the judge. And you know, my wife and I you know, like to watch every now and then these court shows. And so this last week, sometimes we'll take a break and we don't watch them for months, but this last week we watched a, a couple of them. And again, you look in there and, and it doesn't matter whether the plaintiff or the, you know, the person bringing the case or the defendant agree with the judge's decision. It matters nothing at all. Many times whoever loses the case thinks the judge is wrong. It does not matter. Only the judge's decision in that court matters. Whatever they say, that's the judgment done. In fact, um, one uh, judge there, Judge Judy, anyone ever watch Judge Judy? I like to watch them just because I, I get a feel for how law works and I get a feel for how a court case might go. And so I enjoy just seeing what the judge's thinking process is and all of that. Um, oftentimes she gets frustrated with whoever it is. She's, that's my judgment. Done. We're done here. I'm not talking to you anymore. That's it done and it's that way with the lord god the judge says only one sin that's all it takes you can disagree you can argue with him all you want doesn't matter it's the way it is you, you can think he's wrong um, but that's the way it is anyways uh, because his is the only opinion that matters in his court and so legal guilt before god here's some uh, verses to touch on that galatians three ten. for as many as are um as are of the works of the law, are under the curse of it. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. 
But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So that's something we touched on before. Um, that the law basically points out we can't actually keep it. So no man is justified or made right in the sight of God from, because of the law, because the law points out the things we don't get right and shows that we're guilty of being lawbreakers. And then so it ends there, the just shall live by faith then. We don't live by the works of the law, but anyone that's under the, the law is under the curse of the law. James 2:10 and 11. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, meaning he's guilty of breaking all the law. He's a lawbreaker. You have to break every part of the law to be a lawbreaker. God's just had to offend in one point. Verse 11 says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. You've broken one part, then you're guilty of all the parts. You're guilty of breaking the law. All right, so in regards to the second point here, results in life uh, and in relationship with God. Okay, um, These are the results of sin regarding life and regarding uh, relationship with God. So scripture sometimes mentions degrees of seriousness of sin such as John 19:11 therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin um, okay so they did something worse or how about in Matthew 5:19 implying there are some commandments greater than others like some that are more important uh, whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven so implying there are some commandments that are lesser than others or um, how about Ezekiel 8 15 thou shalt see greater abominations than these again some some sins are greater than others okay so yes we stand legally guilty on any of the sins but there are some greater than the others the Bible indicates in a number of spots and I'm only just listing some of them okay um, how about uh, whether you do something maybe you sin out of ignorance versus sin on purpose well, Leviticus 5.17, And if a soul sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he knew it not, yet he is guilty and shall bear his iniquity. Okay, So that recognizing me, so just because you didn't know better doesn't mean it was still okay. But now I'm going to compare that with Numbers 15.30. But the soul that... Do, does something presumptuously whether he be born in the land or a stranger so whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew the same reproaches the Lord so it recognizes there um, uh, it actually makes a degree of comparison there of someone doing something presumptuously like there's an intentional act on their part there seems to be a distinguishment there sometimes between someone who does maybe something without intent for accidentally versus someone who does. Again, that there's some degrees of how God views these things. And uh, here's another thought in James 3.1. My brethren, be not many masters or be not, you know, don't try to be, you know, we don't need everyone to be leaders, everyone to be teachers. Knowing that we who are teachers shall receive the greater condemnation meaning leaders are held to a higher standard of accountability. And so, Grudem says this, however, the distinction between degrees of serious, seriousness of sin does not imply, 
and this is kind of a side thought, an endorsement of the Roman Catholic teaching that sins can be uh, put into two categories of venial and mortal. In Roman Catholic teaching, a venial sin can be forgiven, but often after punishments in this life or in purgatory, which is the idea of that holding place after death, before you can actually get into heaven, if you weren't good enough to go straight to heaven. A mortal sin is a sin that causes spiritual death and cannot be forgiven. It excludes people from the kingdom of God. Now again, Catholic teaching such as that, including the, the teaching on purgatory, you just don't find them in scripture. The Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory. It doesn't say anything about venial versus uh, mortal sins. And so he just makes a side comment on that. Okay? But if we were to say what happens when a Christian sins, which is our next point here, we'll have to save that. Except I'll just give you a little preview. On the next slide, there's three points. What happens when a Christian sin? How does that affect our legal standing before God? How does that affect our fellowship with God? How does that affect our Christian life? And then a side thought of unconverted evangelicals. Or what, what, are there Christians who aren't really Christians? They call themselves Christians? And what would be in relation to that? All right. So we'll pick up there next week.